Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Another drop of Digital Voices. Ed Marks here with my super producer, Megan. And we have a fantastic guest today, a longtime associate and peer of mine, Met in uh, Vegas. Yeah, I'm jumping ahead. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I'm jumping ahead, but we met in Vegas at a HIMSS event, right, in 2015, 2016. And that is Arvind Krishna. Did I get it close? Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. It's a lovely name, and uh, I wanted to try and nail it. So I think everyone knows I have Indian roots myself, and so uh, I tr- tried to, uh, to get everyone's name right. But anyways, before we get too far off track here, Megan, have you ever visited India? Because our friend Arvind's from India. I have not. That would be a dream bucket list item for sure. Yeah, it's uh, an amazing country for many, many different reasons and certainly has uh, beautiful places to visit. And the people are lovely. And, uh, and of course, the food is like awesome. I experienced a little bit. I mean, I'm sure it's Americanized. But what I've had has been delicious. No, that's cool. So yeah, sometime definitely need to get over there. So Arvind is the chief information officer. He's, as you'll find out in here, he's expert in digital transformation, been a consultant, pretty awesome person. And so thank you for being on our Digital Voices podcast. Thank you, Ed, and namaste to you. Namaste. So I already talked about where we first met. And I know that you're big with HIMSS, actually. You just, uh, I think you were at the HIMSS Asia a speaker yeah. at Hymns Asia, and and you you come out to Hymns whenever the North America Hymns every couple of years, and so hopefully uh, this next year to when you come back out, we'll connect in person. Definitely look forward to that. But in addition to that, you also won your health system won most digital most wired, and for both the ambulatory side and acute care. Absolutely yes, and that was absolutely delightful level nine and. That was a long journey, but a very, very happy journey. Yeah, no, that's cool. We're going to talk talk a lot about it. So what everyone wants to know, though, we try to always get a little bit personal with our guests, is what songs are on your playlist? So what kind of music do you like to get down to? So I'm a more uh, Indian classical Carnatic music, which is the, the traditional music here. But if you are my closest to uh, Western music would be what I hear or what I used to hear during college days, Michael Jackson. Okay, yeah. Michael Jackson, he's it's he's timeless. His music is uh, timeless. I just saw a a clip of him when he was like eight years old and just what a fantastic uh, talent he was. Yeah. And is there an artist like if someone listening says, hmm, I've never heard Indian traditional Indian music, is there a particular artist or anyone that someone might look up? Anybody can look up uh, Indian Carnatic music and wonderful instruments. The violin is uh, now be a thing, uh, has been used for uh, classical music. It's close to about 150, 200 years since the Western instrument came east and uh, improvised into uh, thing, uh, all the culture of this place. And in fact, there's no traditional concert that goes without the violin. And uh, I am learning to play the violin too. That's awesome. That's really cool music. Yeah, I, the reason I, I mention it and go a little bit deeper on it is because it people should try listening to all sorts of music. I, I love the Indian culture and I love the traditional sort of classical Indian music as well. What about life message or mantra? Is there some words that you live by or that help guide you? I think that, uh, most of the time what I look at is... Uh, 
never let go of ethics and uh, do it always right for the right intent of it. It may or may not come out well-meaning, well-worded, well-balanced all the time, but uh, long-term it will be. Yeah, that's really good. So your story is going to be super interesting. Can you share a little bit about your journey personally, professionally? Like, where did you grow up? Obviously, I think we talked India, but I mean, where in India? And then, so how did you become who you are today? And tell us, and then we'll get into your organization, into Apollo. Dad is an army officer. So I did grow, grow up in a defense background with uh, dad. And my brother also joined the uh, Indian uh, Defense Forces. He is, uh, he's an officer with the Indian Navy. Grew up in Chennai, though I was born in Bangalore, so that's possibly my birth connection to India and software, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really an extended connection, uh, conveniently extended connection. But uh, thing, uh, grew up all the in Chennai, Chennai is in South India, and uh, school, uh, college, all here in Chennai, I'm an engineering uh, a graduate in electronics engineering, did my business administration also, and uh, got into the world of uh, software and solutions. And it so happened that most of the customers I used to service were all healthcare customers. So that's really how the association with healthcare happened. So again, it was an association by defacting, uh, by de facto, because that's the domain I was kind of put into and said, go work with these guys. So obviously started learning the domain and thereby started being branded, uh, oh, that healthcare guy. So <laughs> so got no medical uh, education as such as a background, but uh, have been working on the healthcare field uh, for all these 25 years that I've been working now. So so that's really interesting. And uh, I've been, uh, I was uh, in the United States for about eight to 10 years. I was working with the Henry Ford Health System in Michigan. Yeah. Absolute fond memories of Henry Ford and uh, what a wonderful institution it is. And uh, worked in Malaysia and Singapore also. Of course, India being my home nation, that's really where I'd love to settle and that's where I am. And Apollo being a fantastic institute to be in. So that brings it all together. I love that story. And, you know, I, I often wonder how important it is if most of us leaders could get that kind of international experience because you not only obviously India, but you came to the States and then Malaysia and Singapore. And I just have to think logically that that helps, you know, really round out a lot of different parts of leadership, right? The ability to cross-culturally communicate, get along with people, understand, you know, and then the different systems that you worked with within each of those countries. I mean, it just, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah. It's a good mixture of people, cultures, and process. And uh, the line of thinking also, it's not just about a regimented, logical way of thinking, but it also aligns with their core beliefs of what people do. And different countries have different beliefs of how they do their appetite for risk-taking their appetite for, uh, you know, sometimes advancements that sometimes is seen as culturally not very respectful when you're really pushing for something that is a little too drastic as a solution and thereby change management. And so all of those, you know, it brings in and then the whole alignment of people with, if I may say so, 
different looking people different dialects and accents and how we come together and sometimes how those cross barriers also yeah. coming across all of that and still achieving goals i think that was definitely a good learning for me thank god for giving me that uh, exposure definitely. yeah i i'm jealous I, i wish i could say that i have that kind of experience so i here here's another question sort of a surprise question So generally speaking, I know it depends, you know, on maybe the part of the country or the leadership, but do you think, where does a North America sit in risk compared to some of the other countries? Like you were talking about, you know, the risk management and, or change management in North America, are we willing to take more risk when it comes to software or new ideas in healthcare or have some of these other countries where you served have had higher risk tolerance. I'm just trying to figure out what, if how conservative we are. I'll be very honest without uh, sugarcoating it. I think North America is extremely risk averse. They play it safe. They take their own time. I'll give you a, and uh, India or Singapore countries that are much more uh, you know, risk taking. Just look at the number of large projects any health system would execute. Probably a fair answer would be two or three large projects per year yeah. in india uh, it will be easily upwards of 10 to 12 that doesn't surprise me that's why i wanted to ask the question though because i really didn't know but i i sort of assumed you know because i've been known to to sort of be kind of hard on healthcare technology in america thinking that we're a little bit behind some other industries but even within healthcare i think we're behind some other countries in terms of some of the unique things that we're doing and and you sort of you know confirm my belief it's also the volume necessary uh, you know, makes it necessary for us to work fast because we need to serve that many people and we need to serve that many people at qualities that really can't do a trial and error because the volumes is the strength the volume is the weakness also that means that you know you really have to be pristine in planning meticulous in execution and uh, make it an institutional activity that's what helps us do that otherwise you know we just won't be able to keep up with what we need to serve and uh, with growing economies the aspirations are very high they've seen this in, like you said in other industries they've seen this in the financial sector the entertainment industry is always ahead of us leaps and bounds you can do so many things in the entertainment industry the travel and hospitality bring conveniences to you in unique ways that you like and in healthcare which is a lot of hospitality because you're not well but you like somebody taking care of you and you appreciate it when somebody so if you do that in ways people appreciate that aspect of empathy of healthcare mixed with such like you know digital influences kind of make it a logical way by which people look upon for these or they just say oh yeah i like it uh, that was good i'll align to it and uh, the learning curve becomes so small because it just appears that this guy did exactly what i wanted or it looks like oh it's so tailor made just for me and automatic attachment to it that reduces cycles of of uh, you know adopting a solution kind of tr- that whole let's try it out and then see if it works for me those become really small and that's uh, that's kind of unique about this and obviously the, the more you see people consume the more ambitious we get that oh we can do better that's a better idea we can do that also and so we keep running after i also want to do that 
<laughs> that's, that's what keeps us so doing so many projects per year. This is fascinating because, you know, it comes down a lot what you're describing sort of culture. And also, also there's a need. There's a need for speed as a result. So you have to move quickly to serve everyone. So here's another sort of question related. I'd be interested in your answer as I kind of formalize my own hypothesis about, you know, why we're a little bit slower in America. What about in risk taking, is there more tolerance for failure? I'm not talking about like major failure because, you know, the, what you're describing is really agile, right? It's these iterations and minimally viable products and getting it out, moving quicker. So there's not going to be a gigantic failure. But generally, when it comes to failure, is there is there some tolerance for, you know, pe- people making mistakes or, you know, trying something and not and failing and then trying again? Is there, you know, what's the tolerance level? I'm not sure I'm going to call it failure because all, it's pretty much participated. So it's like, okay, we did this, or this is where I think we went wrong. So it's not seen as a failure, a U-turn, or a change course. Okay, we, we tried to do this, or that didn't work for us, so let's take it. So that way, everybody thinks that they are part of it and thereby when there are mistakes and failures or or the outcome is not as per anticipation there is that uh, willingness and logical acceptance that we were part of it and some of the calculations we made did not work out as desired and hence move on and the willingness to move on and not let go of the goal, but try to start looking at alternate paths or recalibrate in terms of, yes, this is the goal. We're not going to dilute it, but still achieve it. And thereby, you know, make some amends to it that's logical to consume. I think that's part of it. And like what I said earlier, it's always a mindset of, okay, how are we going to get this working for this larger volume of our stakeholders? And so that keeps the mindset also of implementation and execution. It's kind of like the back of the mind always. I love this. And the reason I'm asking these questions, because at one, it's fascinating to me. And two, I'm always trying to help us and help you know my organization move faster. And I think some of it is there's a fear of failure. Right. So what you're describing is sort of a culture where, hey, you know, it's not going to be perfect. You can do everything you can to do it right. But you're going to do little iterations so that you you minimize the, the errors. And when there is an error, you just work around it, move on, learn from it. And I think sometimes in North America, failure has such a negative taboo that if you do something and you fail, it's a negative mark on you and it could hurt your career. So what happens, no one says this verbally, but I think what happens over time is it puts a lid on creativity and risk taking and everyone wants to play it safe because if you play it safe, you're safe. And if you take a risk, you're not safe. And so I think it's happened over years and years where we've kind of done this to ourselves. And so it's really refreshing. And I always wonder, you know, other organizations, uh, you know, other parts of the world don't seem to have that same cultural issue. And I, and I, and I would love to see us, uh, it'll take a generation to solve it. There's no quick fix. You know, you could talk about it in a manage, 
Possibly an approach of looking at the financials also. See, North America has a better economy and thereby a financial system that's much better than the growing countries. And so the growing countries, you know, there is that, that perennial understanding and appreciation for the value of the currency yeah and fully knowing that it is not in abundance so that commitment to using the money rightly not squandering it at the same time you know putting it to as much constructive use as possible is also very cultural so it's like you know we uh, we can really, uh, literally stretch the rupee and we are yeah. really experts in doing that in terms of stretching the rupee. And sometimes that's our problem too. Right. That also kind of gives you that, hey, watch out. You don't have abundance to spend. At the same time, you can't not achieve because there's an outcome on something that's dependent on us. So I think all that adds to that ability to be balanced at the same time, you know, a little more uh, faster running, I would say. And it's fascinating. I, I can keep going just on this topic alone, Armin. This is a re- really, really interesting. But I guess we'll move on because uh, otherwise I'll say something too controversial and get, get in trouble by someone. But <laughs> tell us a bit about Apollo. Tell us, I mean, we already established you guys were 9 out of 10 on the most digital, most wired in both ambulatory and acute care. You're obviously doing something right. But tell us about Apollo. And then I want to ask about, because I don't think many people know, like how's the health system structured in India? Apollo is the largest uh, healthcare system in this part of the world. I can very comfortably say close to about 10,500 beds in our health system. We are about uh, 44 hospitals, uh, 22 day surgeries, close to uh, about 5,000 retail pharmacies in our network chain. In our uh, retail healthcare, we've got close to about 254 primary care clinics, about uh, 30 chronic diabetes management clinics. NCDs is a is a big problem, and diabetes is definitely a big problem in India. Close to about 95 dental clinics, about 25 birthing centers, about 1,300 diagnostic centers and uh, close to about uh, 90 (coughs) dialysis centers too. So pretty much a very large integrated enterprise. In addition to this, we've also got the healthcare, the education, healthcare education as part of our group. So we run two undergrad med schools. We run close to about eight nursing uh, schools, two uh, health management, business health management institutes too. So that's part of the thing. And then we also do a upskilling program through our thing, group companies called Medvarsity and MedSkills that do the further education, not just on the medical side, but also on the paramedic and ancillary side. So that is thought through because talent is always a shortage in this part of the world. Definitely our thing, supply to demand is not even not even comparable you know it's like uh, it's like Gulliver and the Lilliput so that's kind of what supply and demand means so so the health system is I would say well-oiled fully grown health system tertiary care uh, 
services, the largest solid organ transplant uh, institute. So we've done that in terms of uh, you know numbers, close to about uh, three hundred and fifty-two thousand admissions over last fiscal, close to about four and a half million outpatients, about uh, two hundred thousand preventive health checkups. Uh, did about 5,000 to 6,000 heart surgeries, close to about 28, uh, 25 to 28,000 neurosurgeries, of which 750 robotic surgeries also, about 140 uh, liver transplants, like I said, the very large solid organ transplant. So it's a very good uh, tertiary care practice. So maybe literally we, we look at being the everything that somebody needs in health. Yeah, sounds like not just the high end, but also the normal stuff. And normal also meaning being responsible to ensure that we keep the patient well. And that is not just an episodic relationship, but have a, a lifetime relationship. That way, that's where the digital comes in, and you know, a very good omni-channel of uh, keeping that connection, thereby ensuring that it's healthcare delivery and not really treatment of a diagnosis and we we try to steer away from uh, that episodic treatment of a diagnosis approach and we kind of don't believe in it definitely very solid vision from our founder chairman who is a cardiologist himself our institute is close to 40 years old now our health system and it is the first indian private healthcare so in a lot of ways, we've been pioneering a lot of private healthcare in India. So that way, a very and a very respected uh, group of clinicians that we have who definitely have fantastic hands and a and a wonderful heart when it comes to managing patients. Yeah, that's great. No, you, what you described is the utopia that we're all seeking, right? That that we all aspire to. So it's great that you all have done it. So yeah, and so one last question, just on India healthcare in general. So you mentioned that you're private, but I think, right, the, all the citizens have access to, you have a public health system in India. Yeah. There's a public health system and there's a private health system. So, of course, our institute was started in 1983. But since the 1990s, the uh, thing, uh, addition of private uh, players in healthcare has been pretty large. So, healthcare is literally uh, split between the private and the public. Those literally who can pay for treatment definitely go to private. And India is still very much cash kind of an organization, meaning not too much, uh, meaning insurance is making foray into, into healthcare, but uh, it's still very much cash oriented. Where, like I said earlier, it's very, very uh, focused on costs and efficiency. In India now, the government has announced the possibly the world's largest public health care program that is the National Health Authority called Ayushman Bharat. Ayushman in Indian language means well-being and prosperous. Health a program that caters to everybody, every family, every family for their secondary and tertiary care. And India has a political structure as a federal government and as a state government. And every state government also has uh, state government health schemes that cover the citizens. So there's a good mix of public health care and private health care. And in Indian terms, Indian private health care is very much affordable. Right. So if I had to give you a number, a CABG heart surgery in India 
would be a rough order equivalent of between 2000 and 2500 us dollars with with a good constructive length of stay of 4 days yeah i've seen the clinical outcomes they are superior at that price point you know it's a big difference than what we have so that way you know indian healthcare is also being very responsible and and the most recent experience with the pandemic and how india managed covid i think uh, i think our health systems everybody the government the people the private the allied industries they really came together because for the volume and size of india even the numbers that we saw who were affected by covid which was a significant number if you compare the numbers just worldwide but in terms of the numbers of people who are affected and the indian population that was a major victory of keeping people as much away from the the bad virus and getting such a large population vaccinated two doses and the third booster dose also really the health system and the allied industries came together well and i think what this has done is brought healthcare not just public healthcare and, and i'm kind of making a difference between public healthcare and healthcare because there's so many things that go as part of healthcare public healthcare could be certain you know epidemics endemics you know different types of flus and and seasonal diseases it's really brought good focus into healthcare and a very very solid focus into wellness you know with yoga which is alternative medicine of exercising and just maintaining structures well it's really brought people to attention on you know take care of your health because at least do it uh, so that you don't spend your money on healthcare and you spend your money on yourself. Oh, I could go a whole another hour on that particular topic. This is really fascinating. I just try to uh, figure out where to go next because we literally have like two more hours worth of uh, talk track here and, uh, and we just have a couple more minutes. Let me ask you, because I think this is really important and you touch on it now a couple times, the whole wellness. And you talked about the relationship with the patient, not episodic, but like all the time prevention. And I know because I've done my research, I know, Apollo, you are leading sort of the world in some of these areas. Can you give one example, maybe how you do this? Like if we bring back the digital, is there any tool that they have access to that helps them, you know, hey, make sure I go to my yoga or what, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, the genesis for this is basically India NCDs kind of, you know, seem to be uh, liking each other, which is not good. So lots and lots of cases of NCDs and with economy growing, uh, people, habits, stress, work, eating habits, exercising, all of that takes a backseat. And thereby people are seeing, meaning our generation is seeing much more disease patterns that are avoidable than our parents and, and grandparents. So it's 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 visible. We've, we've all experienced it ourselves. There's, there's a story in almost every family, every household. So uh, this is again credit to uh, the vision of our chairman, Dr. Reddy, in terms of, and he keeps saying this, prevent the preventable deaths. And this is where he says, bring people into that regime of wellness. And uh, he uh, advocated the whole aspect of personalized preventive health. And why personalized? Because everybody is different. And thereby bringing in all the signs of genomics, uh, seeing, uh, understanding your own construct and constitution. 
And this is where we brought in technology, digital technologies, <clears throat> good, powerful AI. We've got our own machine learning algorithm on cardiovascular diseases that uh, predicts cardiovascular diseases. And uh, we've got a very good uh, success rate out of that, close to about uh, 92% accuracy on predicting cardiovascular uh, diseases. We've got close to about 94% accuracy on pre-diabetes. So these AI programs that are, you know, carved out of the data that our own institute has, you know, collected over the last 25, 30 years, though we are in existence for 40 years, we've been on good electronic systems for a long time. And making those patterns for this part of the world, because most of what we had was the Western. So we, we made those patterns and brought that use the mobile revolution in India also where things were put into apps. So we have this wonderful program called ProHealth, which combines with our digital platform called 247, where, you know, a person is put into a preventive health checkup and then he's got this lifelong or a year-long, uh, you know, regular follow-ups. So if you're well, excellent, keep well, but, you know, did you do this, did you do this, and constant checkup. And both, you know, digital nudges, and call them on the phone through the medical response centers so that, you know, because we are lazy. We see the message on the thing and we swipe it out. Right. We find reasons to be lazy always. So so kind of bring people both digital and physical. And uh, also the coaches, the health coaches who explain the why behind it rather than be instructional. And of course, the clinicians who sit and coach explain, counsel, all of that put together as to why. All that has gone into Apollo's preventive health checkup that's called ProHealth. Yeah. Good digital engagement, physical engagement, all put together. And that's really why prevention is important. And most unfortunately, NCDs is too high, too prevalent. And, uh, you know, we're seeing very young people having cardiac uh, issues. And most of them are not genetic but could be lifestyle and habits and, and stress related that can really be well controlled. You all are doing, and that's why I wanted you, you know, as our guest, what you and your team at Apollo are doing is striking. It, all the things that you talked about are things that we do in, we do in pockets around North America, you know, and some organizations do a little bit more than others. And we can definitely look to you all as examples of, you know, sort of putting it all together. I mean, all the example, I, I'm not going to repeat everything you just said, but you touched on a lot of different areas of things that you're doing. And it's doing all of those that has that greatest overall impact. You can do a couple things like you can have a really nice portal, which I believe in, but that's not enough. You got to do these other things too, that you're talking about. And I love the combination of the physical and digital. Those were the words you use, but you're right. I get, I get these nudges every once in a while on my, my, on my uh, portal, my health portal. It's really easy to ignore it. But if someone's also calling me, you know, we have these call centers where there's a lot of downtime, right? So why not repurpose the, you know, when someone's not on the phone, 
to make those proactive calls. It's just, it's pretty amazing what you do. We'll, we'll have to have you back. And cause I, I wanted to talk to you a lot more about sort of digital transformation at large and leadership, because clearly you're a great leader. So we'll have to have you back. And I promise I'll stick to just, you know, one topic, but you opened up some really interesting things to explore. And I'm glad you went there with me. So thank you for being our guest and thank you for all that you're doing there in India to help save people's lives. Thank you. And always a pleasure talking to you and definitely so much we can achieve in healthcare and so much that technology can do for healthcare delivery. I think we're just scratching the surface. This is a, a huge iceberg and I think we've got close to 10 times what we've even set out to do to even uncover, understand, and then actually find solutions. So, yeah. so much to do. And I think we should all do as much as we possibly can. Yeah, agreed. And again, what you're all doing in, in Apollo and in India is very inspirational. I think gives our listeners a lot of hope for where they are in their organizations to continue to push, to take risks and uh, what I call manageable risk, you know, calculated risks and really, you know, leverage the technology and digital to help save people's lives. So thank you so much. And that wraps up another edition of Digital Voices. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Martin. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening. 